thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for the law. Stand up for decency. Stand up for compassion. Stand up for respect. Stand up for your community. Stand up for your future. Stand up for South Africa. LeadSA.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Hello, Chris. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to hear from you and to speak to you again. Let's I get like on that. with it then. Uh, we have some uh, questions that were emailed to us last week. Um, Zamo Kabani in Orlando East wants to know, is it necessary to drink eight glasses of water a day? Well, the thing is, we, we haven't actually said how big a glass is, have we? So uh-huh. uh, that's a trick question for a start. But the thing is, no, there's not really any evidence that supports you saying you absolutely have to have this obligatory intake of water every day over and above any threshold amount. Now, let me qualify that. The amount of water which we get through in a day is largely determined by what we're doing and the ambient conditions. In certain conditions, such as if you go trekking in the in the Arctic or the Antarctic, where you're breathing very hard and the air is very dry, in other words, the humidity of the air you're breathing in is, is extremely low because it's so cold, then you can breathe out litres of water in your breath every day. If you go to a very hot place and the humidity again is quite dry and you uh, are working out, then you can sweat five litres of water every hour. Mm-hmm. So there's no 100% rule, this is how much you need on any given day, because what you need to do is to match how much you've lost with how much you take in. And the human body is extremely good at regulating its temperature and also st- saving water. We're not the best organisms on the planet mm-hmm. for, for saving water. There are very specialist animals that live in the desert and things that are really, really good at that. But we're pretty good at water conservation and we're pretty good at thermoregulation. And if you replace what you lose within reason, then everything will be well. Okay, lovely. Let's go straight to the lines then. Oscar in Linasia, hi. Hi. Mm. Uh, hi, Chris. My four-year grandson asked me, I was burning paper, and he asked me, why does it turn uh, black? Why is it that when you burn anything, it turns black? Why not any other color? Okay. Um, the reason that things go black color is because they usually contain a lot of carbon. And when you burn things like bits of wood or whatever, then usually when the temperature of that substance is heated by the fire or the the chemical process of combustion, what it's doing is releasing vapour from that fuel source. So you're breaking up the molecules into small light molecules that float away, interact with oxygen in the air and oxidise. In the process, they make more chemical bonds which releases more energy and this makes the fire hot and sustain itself. And the reason that flames have, say, an orange colour is because there are partly burned bits of the molecules in there 
carbon-rich bits and maybe some sodium as well. And these partly burned hydrocarbons and, and other particles fluoresce or glow with an orange colour. Uh, the residue that's left behind is going to be the heavier carbonaceous material which can't get turned into vapour in that way and is very usually very carbon-rich and therefore tends to be quite black. So sooty stuff is partly burned carbon-based material, carbon like graphite being black, mm. the stuff looks black. Chris, I've got a long email here. I'll just uh, summarize it. Uh, this woman who wants to remain anonymous says she is pregnant and the doctor has put her on progesterone to prevent a miscarriage because she's had it before. And she wants to know, can doctor, can you really prevent a miscarriage or if there is something wrong with the embryo, it will naturally disintegrate? It's a really difficult one, this. And also, again, rather like the water question, there's no 100% right answer. Um, first of all, congratulations on uh, getting pregnant because that's a really good achievement in itself mm -hmm. and I hope that everything goes well. In terms of what causes things to sometimes not go well, then there are a whole range of reasons. Sometimes it just happens and actually the, the rate at which babies are lost is quite high. It may be one in four or one in five pregnancies can actually have a miscarriage at some point so it can be quite high. Mm. This is actually nature's selection process because usually when an embryo um, turns into a fetus that is inviable, usually that's for genetic reasons because when you actually have a sperm and an egg forming a fertilised zygote, in other words, this is a, a cell which has got the combination of the gen genetic material of the egg and the sperm in it, there should be the correct genetic makeup in there. Sometimes in the gene sorting process that goes into making sperms and making eggs, then some genes can go awry or there can be damage to genes or there can be some chromosomal rearrangements which make the progeny genetically unstable and the embryo actually is inviable because it doesn't contain the right proportions of genetic material and this brings the pregnancy to an end. F in other circumstances there can be maternal factors, there could mm. be an immune factor or there could be a uterine factor. There can be a whole range of reasons why things can go wrong and infection can also cause a problem. If, if the mum acquires a certain infection when she's pregnant, there are certain virus infections that can get across the placenta, they can get into the developing baby and they unfortunately can destroy such a critical amount of tissue in the baby that the, the embryo, sorry, the baby mm. then dies. So there's a whole range of different reasons. Some of them may be preventable. Um, certainly there are some genetic ones which, which are not necessarily going to be terminal, but if we don't do something about them, um, there, there could be a problem. There are also immunological factors. And for instance, if a mother has what's called rhesus um, disease, this can, this can also be a problem. So under certain circumstances, if they can be diagnosed and they're amenable to treatment, they can be prevented. Under other circumstances, this is nature's way of, of actually removing from the circulation babies that wouldn't be viable if, if you were to carry them for longer. Sure. All right, George in Randburg. Hi. Hi. Mm. How is everybody? Uh, I got a question. It's me for a while. A geezer, uh, like the one that we use at home for hot water, when does it consume more electricity? When it's on all the time, or when you switch it off it uh, or on? Hi, George. Uh, this is Hi. a frequent bone of contention. The, the way in which these things work is they have a big electrical element inside the tank, and it's coupled to a thermostat. 
and so stuck onto the side of the tank there's usually a, a hole in the insulation and up against the usually copper they're made of but often stainless steel as well up against the metal of the tank is a thermostat which records the temperature of the tank and it controls the flow of electricity and turns the element on or off according to whether or not you've reached the satisfactory temperature for what you want your water to be at now the general rule of thumb here is that the hotter something is the greater the gradient in other words the the uh harder it's trying to get rid of the extra energy it has mm -hmm. so if you keep something at a really high temperature and you keep it there all the time then it's going to lose more energy by default and it's going to try harder to lose that energy because everything in the universe is spreading out and it wants to go from areas where there's a lot of something to areas where there's less of something so if you have your tank on and you leave it on all the time and it's got a tank full of very hot water all the time and you only use it infrequently then this is going to be less efficient than if you turn it on warm the water up use all the water and then leave it till the next time you want it because there will be leakage of energy away from the tank when it is kept um at tip-top hot temperature but you're not using it so you're going to be throwing away energy replacing the energy that's leaking away if you just heat it up when you need it use all the water and then that's that's it done and dusted that's probably the most efficient way to use your water so i think it comes down to what your pattern of water usage is and what's practical for a household mm -hmm. uh thank you very much george for uh asking that question i think it's a very topical one in south africa we're running out of energy we're trying to save electricity and we're often urged to switch off our geysers at certain times so it's good to have as much information as one can possibly get uh david and cyril dean hi Good morning to you. Mm. Uh, a simple question, but always perplexed me. If blood is red, why are veins blue? <laughs> That's oh, a very green good one. in some um, cases, eh? Yeah, I did have a patient who had green blood, actually. Green blood, um, not a, green yes, veins? There's, <laughs> there's a medical condition, um, and it's called, uh, I think it's sulfemoglobinemia. Um, basically, this condition is caused by certain drugs actually contain a sulfur group uh -huh. and sumatriptan is a migraine medication which can do this it contains sulfur in it and it binds to the hemoglobin in such a way that it changes the way the hemoglobin interacts with visible light and instead of reflecting red light hemoglobin starts to reflect green light and mm -hmm. it absorbs red so the blood looks green and this this happens occasionally in a small minority of people who have, a, I think, a certain way of, of dealing or handling with the molecule or it builds up to a slightly high level in their blood and, and then they get it. I don't think it's harmful, but it, it can certainly happen. In terms of why blood is blue in veins, allegedly, it's interesting because the whole idea of being blue-blooded was viewed as a, a sign of pure breeding and it goes back to the uh spanish days actually they used to talk about sangre azul mm -hmm. blue blood and this was used as a way of distinguishing purebred individuals in the population from those who had had their ancestry tainted by the dark-skinned moors who obviously overran the country uh, in the past the point being that if your blood looked blue in your veins then you must have paler skin and this was viewed as a sign of pure purer breeding then mm -hmm. um in fact, it's it's a myth that blood in veins is blue because if you, like me, are a doctor and you take a sample of blood out of a vein or you go to the doctor and see your blood come out of a vein, even though the vein that it's collected from looks blue, the blood that comes into the syringe is clearly not blue. Yes. It is a dark red colour. So what's going on? Well, it's actually an optical illusion. And why this happens is quite complicated, but 
the bottom line is that when you shine light into the skin, red light actually goes into the skin quite well, but blue light doesn't go into the skin very well at all. So the blue light tends to be scattered or absorbed into the skin, but the, the red light goes in a long way. Where the veins are, deeper in the skin, the light reaching them is largely going to be a red colour. Mm-hmm. Now, in the vein, there will be blood which actually is going to absorb some of the red light but reflect a darker red light because venous blood is dark red. So what your eye sees coming back to it is some vein, or is the pattern of a vein, which has got some red light coming back to it, which is a bit darker than the red light from the adjacent tissue. And because of a phenomenon called colour constancy, when you see a darker red next to a lighter red, the Mm -hmm. brain actually interprets that not as a red colour but as a purple colour. So what you see is a purpley colour next to a red colour and you conclude the vein must be blue. It's actually not. And if you cut down into the tissue and expose a vein, you'll see it's actually a sort of glistening whitey colour with a slightly off-white, darker centre where the blood is. And so it's an optical illusion. And there's a guy in Germany who did a beautiful experiment on this. He made a pretend blood vessel and he put some blood inside it mm-hmm. and he had it at different heights in a beaker of milk and he could drop the blood vessel into the milk and watch what colour it went. And when it's close to the surface, just like a thread vein on the surface of your skin, it looked red. And as it went deeper down into the milk, it looked a blue colour. Because milk is very good at scattering light all over the place. And so that that shows it's an optical illusion. It's nothing to do with the blood actually being a blue colour. Right, Andrew and Lala, please stay on the line. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. What question would you like the Naked Scientist to answer for you? Let's go to Andrew in Newlands. Hi. Good morning. I just wanted to find out about evacuated tubes for heating the soil, uh, for heating your water in your geyser. What happens to that water? Obviously, uh, you can't turn on and off the system. It works from UV rays. So your system must get up to like 150 degrees, the water temperature in the actual geyser. Evacuated tubes, okay. Hi, Andrew. Water has a very high specific heat capacity, so actually I don't think it'll get quite that high because there's so much energy that can be uh, put through it. Um, it's, it, it will get very hot, though, I grant you. Um, I don't actually know um, what the system is that you're referring to. I've used solar panels to heat a swimming pool um, at my mum's house for a very long time, and the water never got to 150 degrees, thankfully, but those were the slightly less efficient ones than, than the panels you're referring to. I think the answer is that there are, there are clever ways of releasing the pressure, and uh, if you uh, let the water keep getting hotter and it will just expand you can therefore release the pressure and so you won't have a major problem with it but if anyone actually can tell me what the plumbing is on these i'd be grateful because i don't know the answer to that question sorry andrew okay uh let's go to chris in centurion hi there chris hi there good hello good chris day. yes good day. can you hear me yes we can uh, morning chris hi chris uh, happy new year thanks chris and you what's your question uh, very quickly, I want to know why do some chickens lay an egg with a double yolk and some chickens lay an egg with a single yolk? Very interesting indeed. Uh, good question. The answer is I don't know, but I think the phenomenon is probably similar to the way in which uh, embryos divide and, and give twins, that kind of thing. What can happen when you're making an egg? You are basically producing, an egg is just an incubator, and uh, it contains in it... Um, 
half the genetic material of one organism so that when the sperm comes in, it fertilizes, it adds the second half of the genetic material. In the process of making the egg, um, you will partition off the genetic material and you will make some structures which are going to nourish the uh, developing chick, the yolk sac and all that kind of thing. I suspect that the process that drives the development of that structure for some reason and occasionally can split into two and so instead of getting one you get two and so, so somewhere at the beginning of the process it just splits and the stem cells which follow a genetic pattern telling them what to divide into and what to grow into each of those individual stem cells then begin to develop their own body um, so you get two sets of yolks and two sets of all the structures whether or not if that egg were fertilized you would get two chicks i don't know um so if anyone knows the answer to that one i'd be grateful but i will look that up because i'm quite intrigued yes i am thank you too. for the question and Thanks, happy new Chris. year to you thank too thank you let's go to muletsani in boxburg hi Rini. yes yes uh, hi doc uh, my question is actually for my small daughter asking about slides what their role in the ecosystem, we actually uh, hate them so much. And also cockroaches, <laughs> what's their role in the ecosystem? We hate them also, but it's only... <laughs> <laughs> What's the role of flies in the ecosystem? Well, you could say, what's the role of a virus in the ecosystem? What's the, what's the role of a mosquito in the ecosystem? The answer is that during evolution, the process by which organisms adapt and change the environment, things change in response to selective pressure. So if there is an opportunity, a niche created in an environment, then something will, by the process of evolution and selective pressure, adapt and change to occupy that niche because everything on Earth is trying to uh, obtain energy and exploit the environment and pro propagate its genes into its offspring. And if there is an opportunity sitting there which no one else is exploiting and you could go in there and not face the same competition or the same adversities as trying to live in your present environment, then you would move. It's rather like if you lived somewhere and it was smelly and dirty and noisy, there was no running water, that kind of thing, you might mm. say, well, I don't like living here, but up the road there's an empty house and it's got electricity, it's got toilet it's got water and that kind of thing i'll move up the road to that house no one's going to stop me you would do that if no one said it was a problem you might do it anyway but the thing is you would move and you would respond to the selective pressure of your present environment to occupy another one and so anything that exists exists because there was an opportunity for it to exist a niche in the environment and evolution has led to it being uh formed and the same applies to flies. Flies are there because there is an opportunity, there is rubbish and mess, and there are, there are places where the flies can lay their eggs. They have wings so they can move very fast and cover great distances. A downside of their existence is they spread diseases around and they're a nuisance and they go after your lunch. Oh. Um, we actually, when I was in Australia in the middle of, of the desert, because you were the one source of water around, uh, for miles around, flies would home in on you like, mm. like thirsty people around an oasis. And when you're trying to eat lunch, they would actually get into your sandwiches and things. And we, oh, we no. developed this maneuver to keep the flies off, which was you have to sort of sit on your chair and rotate your body backwards and forwards, left to right, continuously, uh, whilst holding your sandwich in both hands at your mouth and if you sort of it's a bit like if you sat on a revolving chair and sort of rotated backwards and forwards and this meant the flies were so disturbed by the fact you were constantly in motion they couldn't land because um, <laughs> they just want to land on you and drink drink sweat basically to get a drink uh, but this this way they couldn't do it so you might want to try that strategy if it's a problem Ew. Lala in Bryanston hi um, yes, hi um, I, I was wondering I met a little baby um, not so long ago in a shopping mall uh, six months old, perfectly saw nothing wrong with her, 
with him, has six fingers on each hand, six toes on each hand. So the long, the long fingers, except for the thumb. So it wasn't like the little finger was like a, just a appendix that can be sort of like taken off afterwards. The four long fingers we normally have, they were five and then the thumb. And quite a wide little hand and so were the feet. I wanted to find out, has this been recorded before? Is this normal? And how does the bone structure within the body allow for that extra finger on each um, mm. hand and foot to form? How, how does Okay, happen? we get the question. Thank you, Lala. Uh, Chris? Thank you, Lala. What you saw was a condition called polydactyly. Poly meaning lots of, and dactyly as in digits. And the same genetic program produces, or broadly the same genetic program, produces the fingers and the toes, which is why you tend to see the same thing happening in the hands as in the feet. And the way that hands and feet form is you have initially a limb bud, which is a little bulge of tissue which grows out from the side of the body um, at the top and bottom of the trunk and turns into the limb. And at the end of that limb bud is a plate or a flat plate of cells which slowly carve themselves up. Uh, they, so you have a, a line of cells and then you kill the cells next to them and then you have a line of cells and you kill the cells next to them and this partitions that flat plate into a series of fingers which will contain bones and other structures. And the skin between them is the bit that dies off which is how you separate out um, your fingers from each other. And this is a genetic program which normally um, has what's called a, a morphogen gradient. So we think that on one side of the developing hand, there's a large amount of a signal. And as you go across the hand, the amount of that signal drops away. And this triggers this process to occur. And for some reason, in individuals, there's obviously some kind of genetic change, which means that that gradient is interpreted differently or an extra digit is coded. And so instead of the flat plate dividing itself up into five digits, it divides itself up into six and there's some quite famous people in history who've had this. Um, Anne Boleyn, who was oh. one of Henry VIII's wives, his second wife, she unfortunately met with an untimely um, interaction with a large axe on her neck <laughs> uh, midway through her life. Um, but she uh, also had, apparently, polydactyly. It's quite common in certain populations. And people, historically, were burned as witches if they had this. They were regarded as a threat because they, they clearly had had some kind of devil's intervention in their lives. But actually, there's no evidence this is harmful. And a friend of mine's daughter had oh. a, a little thumb appendage when she was born, only on one hand, though, so she slightly bucked the trend, and that one was very easily dealt with. The doctor was able to just uh, take away the extra bit of the appendage and merge the two halves together to make one normal thumb. Oh, okay, so, so that was so my next question. Can it be... And can be very easily rectified. Oh, okay. um, and, and it doesn't need to be, um, but, it, but it is quite rare, so it's quite unusual. Um, so you're sort of almost, almost octopus-like, you have an extra digit. Mm -hmm. Chris, I, I'm sure you'd agree, very interesting questions today, so we look forward to speaking to you again next Friday. Have a lovely weekend. Yeah, have a lovely weekend, everyone, and you, Rudy, and um, see you soon. Bye-bye. That's a naked bye -bye scientist, now. and don't forget that all our conversations with him are available as podcasts. You can even go further and learn more about the Naked Scientists. You can visit their website at www.thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.